When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't know what most white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today, we are continuing our discussion on part two of our series on labor unions. We hop right back into the discussion at the beginning of civil rights, what unions look like in modern times, and then talk about several examples. If you haven't listened to part one, make sure you go and do that before continuing in this episode. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Then John Kennedy recognized that labor was crucial to winning the presidency in 1960, which, I mean, yeah, if they're a third of workers, then you need them on board. So he created the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, and he restricted anti-union propaganda, he allowed picketing, he increased the penalties for violating labor law and banned employer lockouts and ensured employee rights, that employees had the right to form unions. By a majority vote. Yep, through a majority vote. Yeah. And that's true today. So according to Gallup, support for unions peaked in 1959. Which is kind of ironic that in this time period when they're really making all this progress and all these concessions and transforming the way labor is done to be more dignified, better paying. I mean, these are kind of like the years when there was like a renaissance in America that the minimum wage in this period was the modern day equivalent of something like $20 an hour. Hmm. It was, you know, lower in that day's money, but because of inflation. But it was the equivalent in that day of of something like $20 an hour. And there was widespread prosperity. But then in that context, the popularity of labor unions suddenly declined. So, Brad, I'm going to put this to you. I'm having fun doing that this episode. What do you think turned it around? What made unions go from this upward climb that was seeing real progress to suddenly starting to fall out of favor? I don't know. If you had to guess... (laughs) <laughs> uh, I don't know. Probably something with I don't know. I would just be looking like a fool. I feel like if I guess, <laughs> if you guessed, if I you guess, I already look like a fool most of the time. If you guessed, it probably would be right actually. Okay, because it's given the nature of this show, right? Yeah, it's kind of what you would I figured. Think. It is racism. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes I I still uh, you know optimistically you know, think <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, oh, maybe we maybe we made a good decision. Yeah, we were moving a good way. But yeah, you're So in just one decade, the explosive growth of unions shifted. In 1959, 
the American Auto Workers Union, which was one of the most visible unions in the country, publicly came out in support of civil rights. So the union took a public stance supporting the March on Washington in 1963 and pressuring the Democratic Party to support civil rights. The industrialists then had what they wanted. They used this to turn back to their old playbook, sowing racial animosity in order to divide labor and basically to try to cast unions as being there to support lazy black people. So this is MLK Jr. Yeah, this was, well, this is like, Going on at the same time. Right. Yeah, at the same time, because the civil rights movement is exploding and becoming this big national movement at the same time, Mm -hmm. industrialists were casting labor unions as being primarily just this institution to support black people. And so the popular support for unions among white people collapsed, Mm. even though they were the ones who primarily benefited derived most of the benefits. Yep. Right. Like that popularity collapsed because they saw it as like a us versus them. And thing. what was that you called, um, you talked about in one of the prior episodes about how white people would cut themselves off at the knees to stop the advancement of black people, mm-hmm. even if it meant that they benefited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a term term for that. Was it like the last place aversion? That- yes. Mm-hmm. Last place, last place aversion. Mm-hmm. So since that peak... The share of U.S. laborers benefiting from collectively bargained contracts has fallen every decade since, from one-third to a current low of one in 16 Hmm. workers. So what has been the effect of that in modern times? The share of workers in a union has directly tracked with the share of income that goes to the middle class in America. During that decade, when unions exploded in popularity, a full 10% of American wealth shifted from the richest to the middle class. And I have here a chart that we can put in the show notes that shows the the line of both. And you'll see that they are a mirror image of one another. Hmm. That the number, I mean, here, Brad, you just react to that chart showing on the one hand, union participation and Mm -hmm. the share of income going to the middle class. Yeah. They're an inverted image of one another. Yeah. We'll put that in the show notes. So as unions fell out of popularity the wealthiest people who benefit from racial division by being able to play people off of each other have been able to derive more and more of the profits of American growth, the economic growth, into their own bank accounts. So in the last few decades, the wages of low education workers have increased by 0.3% a year on average for decades. 0.3% a year. That's not good. That means if you, over the course of... A 40-year working career, your wages have only gone up by like 12%. Wow. Meanwhile, pay for the richest 1% has increased 190%. So the wealth is being siphoned off to the the richest people. And that's been... If you look at... um, I mean, you can Google income inequality chart or income inequality over time. And you can see just graph after graph expressing this that... The, the amount of money that is held by, and this, there was a headline even just in the last, you know, maybe this was five years ago, that for the first time, the majority of Americans are no longer middle class. The middle class is being eroded by this effect. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, but most of the gains are going to the very richest. So a worker in a union that has a union contract 
on average earns 13% better pay than a worker who doesn't have a union. But the actual gains are even greater than that because unions do not just benefit their own members, they actually benefit even people who aren't part of unions. So I am not part of a union, but I still have a 40-hour work week and benefits and all these other things. So if I'm not part of a union, how did I get those? Well, it's because in that era when unions were common, the non-union industries still had to compete against the union companies in the same labor pool. So they had to increase those benefits to keep up with the unions or all their employees would leave and go work at unionized industries and those would just take over the economy. And so non-unionized companies, they actually are pressured into giving their, their employees better deals when there is a high degree of unionization. But in America, as the number of unions have fallen, we've seen less and less of that. One example of that would be uh, Delta Airlines. Delta does not have unionized flight attendants, but they still offer really competitive pay. And the reason they do that is because they know that their flight attendants are going to go work for one of the unionized airlines if that weren't the case. But if none of them were unionized, then you would start to see the pay erode over time. So economists calculate or estimate that if unionization had stayed at 1950s level to today, non-union workers would receive about 8% higher pay. So that's what all of us have lost. Yeah, it just seems like we should have unions more. (laughs) It seems pretty simple, but yeah, I think it was like a... It's so it's such an interesting as someone. I mean, I know that you kind of have a degree in economics, and I don't. But it is a little interesting to hear you talk about these things and how it's tied to racism. Yeah, and how you know when we say like, oh, you know, that doesn't exist today, and maybe it doesn't exist in the way that it did exist. But it's almost like even from my standpoint, the effects of it. And the ongoing, you know, the ongoing pressure of it is still there very much in these other environments, like mm-hmm. even labor unions, which I would have had no no idea before the conversation. Mm-hmm. And how do you argue with that? I mean, mm-hmm. I just it's it's yeah. tough because wh- why wouldn't you? The only reason you wouldn't want that for everybody is if you don't love people, you know. So in many ways, the workforce has benefited from advancements that came about through the pitting of black workers against black white workers and then white workers unionizing with black workers for so- solidarity. And yet, and still, black workers and people of color, workers of color, are still fighting for wage equality and better conditions. And it's weird that the betterment of the country's labor force has benefited off the blacks of black people who are still fighting Mm -hmm. for the same equality that in a lot of ways we've been fighting for this whole time. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, things that we take for granted, like 401k, PTO, insurance over time like that's a given in our day right now that's a given for any job pretty much to expect you know as as far as benefits it it's just wow mm-hmm. and I, and i think we've talked about last place aversion and i think that's the best way to kind of describe the reasoning 
because there really isn't a, okay, I feel like if you just describe that to everybody in the country, we would be like, oh, yeah, let's do that. We wait, don't. I we, can have 8% more pay. I can have 8% <laughs> more pay, like just like that. Uh-huh. And wait, so wait, if other people benefit, I also benefit. Wait, we all benefit. And the only people who in the end actually do benefit, but maybe don't benefit as much as they currently do, are like the richest people in our country. Those are the only people that it really are are being served by the system being what it is. And it wouldn't even hurt them. It would just less benefit them. Yeah. They were already the richest people in the sixties. They just are a hundred times richer now than they were back then. It's like you already have immeasurable money, but then they're basically deriving that money now through this system that is Right. And and even even hearing on all our all of our episodes, and especially this one. I mean, did those people really work hard for their money? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. Did, did, I'm sure they worked hard, like, to the degree that they really wanted to make things happen. But, like, yeah. w- would you look back and say, like, wow, that was a really good way of making the money that now that they have? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This isn't in my notes, but this is just an irony of something I learned in school. If you offer someone more and more money, initially it'll incentivize them to work harder. Right. Like if you go from offering someone zero dollars an hour to two to four to six, you're going to incentivize more work. Past a certain point, and you can see this in graphs, like past a certain point, it backfires. And you will actually disincentivize hard work by offering more pay. Because past a certain point, Time is limited. Someone only has so much time to work. But the money gets to the point where it's like, well, I have so much money anyways, I value my time more now. So since I only have 24 hours in a day, and since I am making buku bucks either way, and money has a diminishing value, to like a diminishing marginal return, is what economists call it, like the more of it you have, the less each extra dollar is worth to you. Right. So past a certain point, you actually, people are less incentivized to work. If you're making a billion dollars an hour, that doesn't mean you're going to work 24 hours a day. Like you're going to work a little bit and then you're going to have a yacht and you're going to go hang out on it like yeah. most of the time. So it, it's actually not true that we need to pay people more and, it's and more like, I hear that to incentivize even, harder work. I hear that and there's stats and stuff, but it's like, man, I still just want a ton of money. You know, we're <laughs> just chasing. It's like we're all just chasing like how much money can we make? And even though that there's like, science and there's data that says like hey actually there's a it comes to a point where that it doesn't make you happier it doesn't affect it 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 probably in some ways decreases the Mm -hmm. optimization of your life Uh, unless you're already not making enough money in the first place yeah so we're specifically talking about people who are already in the margin of wealthy Mm -hmm. employees we're not talking about people who are fighting to keep the lights on. <laughs> but that's exactly the point is if you take an extra dollar and give it to Jeff Bezos or let's say uh, give him a thousand dollars. Not a sponsor. He will not care. Like, right. It's not even worth his time to pay attention to the fact that you did it or to say thank you. Versus if you give it to a family that's struggling, 
that money actually has way more value yes. to the, the poor person because of that diminishing marginal value of money. So money actually does more good for the world if it's distributed more evenly. You actually create value out of thin air by having money be accessible to poorer people who then can use the money in ways that continue to create more value. Like if, if there's a poor kid who doesn't have medical insurance and he breaks his arm and can't afford to, I mean, in America, hospitals will treat him for it even if he can't pay. But, but just to take the example, like if they can't do something to provide basic care, if he can't replace lead pipes because his family can't afford to, if you can't get an AC filter that will filter out allergens for a kid who is allergic and as a result, it like stunts his ability to develop and thrive. Like there are low-lying fruit, things that we could do to create value that poor people can't do because they don't have the funds to get rid of the mold in their walls or they don't have the funds to get working internet so that they can get a job that pays better. So there's actual an increase in value that comes about economically from creating a world that's more fair. And unions, tying it back in, unions are part of how we once did get there and then the racial division caused us to slide in the other direction. And we've been backsliding and there's been effects to that. And it's still the same strategy that's used today of sowing racial division. Like this still happens today, but in slightly more subtle ways. And so an example of that is a a Nissan plant in Mississippi in 2017, a Nissan factory voted on whether or not it should join the United Auto Workers Union. And so Nissan, to reduce pay and insulate itself against the threat of unionization, had been using permanent temp workers, paying them half as much as full-time workers, who they called legacy workers. And then they also created a middle tier of workers that were temp workers basically on this path to become full-time workers. So they created this three-tiered system. And think about that. They're creating tiers and then they're creating competition between those tiers so that rather than try workers banding together and saying, hey, we have common interests where we could increase all of our pay, now basically there's this division where, where the people in the top tier, really the top two tiers, because of last place aversion, they're not going to want to join a union. So Nissan created this multi-tiered system. Uh, it created distrust and competition so that workers fought for relative position in the hierarchy rather than banding together to make common cause. Then they racialized the whole thing. Nissan deliberately or through implicit bias, I don't know exactly what their policies are, but one way or another, this bias filtered down so that through the, the power structure that was headed by white people to where white people had all the best positions. And that sowed racial discord. White people then disfavored, their white employees disfavored unionization by high margins and Nissan cast the whole thing to, to its employees as the union drive would be something that would benefit lazy black people. That's, that's what they tried to cast it as. So Heather McGee conducted extensive interviews at that plant, and she describes, quote, Everyone I spoke to, white, black, management, and production, admitted that the positions got wider as the jobs got easier and better paid. In the face of a cross-racial organizing drive, it seemed to be the company strategy to make white workers feel different than, better than, the black majority in the plant. So Chip, a white leader of the union effort at the Nissan plant, he describes it and says, quote, 
The idea is that if you uplift black people, you're downing white people. So the, the company created this zero-sum game mentality, tried to get the white people to think, well, don't vote for unions because you're, you're hurting yourself. You're, you're hurting the white people of the plant to help the, the lazy black people. And the irony and the hypocrisy of calling black people lazy. This lazy black people narrative is outrageous, but we all know that. And Heather even says, after hearing descriptions of the racial ranking when it came to the physically taxing jobs, I had a hard time squaring that reality with one of the other things I heard repeated in my conversations with workers, particularly the anti-union white workers that management said black workers were lazy and that's why they wanted a union. If they were so lazy, why were they doing all of the hardest, most relentless and dangerous jobs, the ones that always happen to be the lowest paying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the way I've said this before, I don't know if I've said this on the episode, but if you, if you think, how much work would you do for a $100 bill? And then to realize that for people who are working minimum wage jobs, the answer is they would work 13 hours. They'd be willing to work 13 hours to earn that $100 bill. How much would you be willing to work for it? And the hypocrisy then of calling that person, like any minimum wage worker, lazy, when they're working so much more to get the same thing that, I mean, I would maybe work for an hour or two. It's like, I'm the lazy one. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And I mean, I wasn't mm-hmm, that you're lazy. Yeah, but, yeah. Excuse me, Brad. That's rude. So then these dynamics also play out on a larger scale. So not just within companies, but also within society as a whole. And we have these dog whistles, not just for unionization, but also for uh, like minimum wage is, is where the, like a bigger scale version of the same kind of conversation and dynamics. Even today, the region of the country that has the lowest percent of union labor and the lowest minimum wages are the former Confederate states. And in much of the South, the word union has been coded as a dog whistle to represent lazy and undeserving black people. And that racist sentiment has stagnated wages for the entire working class population, white and black. The 21 states that use the federal minimum wage have some of the largest black populations and the five states with no minimum wage laws at all are all in the South. And those states also, like the, if you look at average like income per capita, it's the Southern states, the former Confederate states that have the most struggling economies, like the lowest average And by wages. Confederate states, you're saying states that were part of the Confederacy. <laughs> you're going to do this. <laughs> you're going to do that this thing again. That fought against... That fought to keep... That fought to keep... Slavery. Slavery. Yes. Got it. Mm -hmm. So over time, because of the erosion of unions in America, the conditions have just declined. Today, only one in 16 private sector workers benefit from a collectively bargained contract. Almost half of American workers now are classified as low wage, earning about $10 an hour or less. Less than half of private employers offer health insurance, which, I mean, Katina, to your point, it's like you were saying, this is just kind of something we take for granted now, and yet it too is eroding. Like if you look over time at the benefits packages of businesses, uh, particularly of businesses where labor is not specialized, 
it is eroding. Only 12% of private sector workers have a guaranteed retirement income from like a pension. So the conditions are fading. Well, and at the same time, there are some signs of hope. I want to quote two men to wrap the episode up. And I think it's just a powerful way to end this episode as we reflect on the history, the complicated history of unions in the United States. I'm going to quote Gil Scott Heron. He wrote a song called Whitey on the Moon in 1970. And I'm going to read the lyrics. A rat done bit my sister nail with Whitey on the moon. Her face and arms began to swell and Whitey's on the moon. I can't pay no doctor bill, but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years from now, I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. The man just upped my rent last night because Whitey's on the moon. No hot water, no toilets, no lights, but Whitey's on the moon. I wonder why he's upping me because Whitey's on the moon. I was already paying him 50 a week with Whitey on the moon. Taxes taking my whole damn check. Junkies making me a nervous wreck. The price of food is going up. And as if all that shit wasn't enough, a rat done bit my sister nail. Her face and arm began to swell. Was all that money I made last year? How come there ain't no money here? You know, I just about had my feel. I think I'll send those doctor bills, Airman Special, to Whitey on the Moon. So that is such a powerful and relevant song. In 1970, predating 1970 and even today, as we have the news of the young man Christian Smalls, who is making major strides to unionize Amazon workers. And Amazon is paying millions of dollars, millions of dollars to squash this effort. He's a young black man, and he's become what they say is Amazon's worst nightmare. And he, he's quoted because they had a recent victory because they've gotten several signatures. I mean, this, this one young black man is making all these major moves and is in the national media. Yeah, they unionized their first warehouse. Yeah. And he said, we want to thank Jeff Bezos for going to space. Because while he was up there, we were signing people up. Mm. <laughs> I think that. Because Whitey's on the moon. I think, yeah, because Whitey's on the moon. Yep, I love it. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast, you can support us for $5 a month at Patreon. That's patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. On our next episode, we will be discussing Juneteenth. We'll leave you with this quote from Alice Walker. No person is your friend who demands your silence or denies your right to grow.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.